0: Continue where we left off last uh, couple of evenings ago, um, concerned with the development of samadhi, using the image of the dog runs after the bone. If you recall, actually, before we get to that, to make sure I don't forget, a few one announcement. <laughs> Bad news for couples. All couples, husbands and wives, cellmates, dharma mates, classmates, colleagues, dharma brothers, dharma sisters. as all of you who've come up together um, and who are kind of doing things together. It's, uh, it's not working out too well. Do you remember at the first evening, uh, suggestions about keeping your eye gaze averted and also maintaining silence? Um, There are a number of couples walking around. It's not that you're doing anything so terrible. It's just that the rules are, and for very good reason, that each person does the retreat for themselves. And I know it's difficult when you come up with someone Uh, to separate for the period of, let's say, nine days. And um, the tendency is to exchange lots of notes, to talk, and um, what I've discovered, I guess, accidentally, to go off into the woods or wherever. Uh, it's not that we're that rigid. I understand that sometimes things have to be exchanged when you come up with someone. But uh, try to see it from a somewhat different angle, first of all, out of consideration for other people, it's still talking. It's still um, a certain, as we used to say in the '60s, the vibration is more one of a Swiss ski chalet, you know, than a <laughs> Buddha, than a Buddhist meditation center. This is a monastery. I mean, accept it. You handed yourself over to a Buddhist monastery for lay people. And so that kind of, you know, winter wonderland. (laughs) And it's hard because the woods are beautiful and the air is nice and you're probably happy and have a good relationship. And here are we destroying it. (laughs) Not really. Actually, you won't like this, but it's very good training to try to maintain the silence. I know it's difficult if you've come up with someone that you're close to. And talk about the dog runs after the bone. The bones that are going to come up now are going to be quite incredible, probably. The persons, one person, you're both walking with your eyes averted, but that can be easily turned into all kinds of things. Feelings of rejection. Or if you see the person smiling and happy because their meditation is going well, fear that they're going to become a monk or a nun. (laughs) you You knew you shouldn't come up here. It was on your mind. All along, your better judgment said it was a high risk. <laughs> it's not true. You can, In fact, what will happen is you'll just have a second honeymoon on Sunday afternoon when you come together. It will be very nice. But you can learn a lot about yourself, about your neediness, about the need to be comforted very often. Seriously. Um, so try to cooperate with that aspect of things. Um if you recall uh, the image of the dog runs after the bone, what it was what was suggested is that we're the dogs we have doggy mind, and that from the point of view of samadhi now, which is what we're working on, um, the mind throws up all these things and with incredible extroverted exuberance, we just run after all of them. Not that what we run after is necessarily so fulfilling because much of what the mind throws up turns out to create suffering for us. But off we go anyway. Uh, and was suggested that the tiger, I've been corrected, I've been told it's really the lion, but whoever, one of those, um, doesn't run after the bone, but remains steady, just stays right there and watches where the bone came from, watches where it was thrown. It doesn't go scampering after everything that gets thrown. And what was suggested is that our samadhi practice is a lot like that. That... Uh, what happens is the uh, the mind constantly throws things up. We run after most of them. There's a kind of uh, attitude of inevitability about it. That is, all of these, because most of what's being thrown up is old stuff. You know, it's yesterday's news. It's nothing. We know it for the most part. And uh, the samadhi practice, if you recall, we were getting into One of the ways in which the samadhi practice helps us get out of harm's way, because it enables us to short circuit this inevitability that's in the mind. That of course we have to go. If there's worrying happening, of course we have to worry. And if there's fear happening, of course we have to run after, grasp onto, and then feel frightened or discouragement or whatever. And. The, the fact that this kind of obstinate familiarity that some of these things have that come up over and over again in the mind and which are as compelling over and over again. We keep being sucked in, drawn into it. We keep running after the bone. Um, what the samadhi practice offers us is the possibility of short-circuiting that and understanding that we have other possibilities, we have other options, that we needn't always conform to those patterns, but actually we can turn in a new direction. It's actually what is called turning towards the Dharma. The bone, more technically, <clears throat> consider the kilesas. These are the different forms of greed, hatred, and delusion. Many forms, some gross, some very subtle. That These energies, which very powerfully operate in our heart, and which control us. We'll go into that in more detail, possibly tonight at this time, if not sometime during the retreat. And turning towards the Dharma is just in the simple fact of electing to breathe consciously, to go to the breath, rather than to always get caught up and be taken on a trip by all these aspects of mind, uh, that's where we short circuit it. We create creative possibilities and we begin to learn how to let go of things that are not taking us anywhere. But, and even at this point, wisdom is very, very helpful and needs to be brought in. For example, if you do the practice, the samadhi practice, and at the beginning it's very hard not to do it this way. You're just obeying the teacher. Let's say the instructions are, as you know, you've heard it quite often now, bring awareness to the in-breath and the out-breath and every time the mind moves from that, just come back. And so, you're a good yogi, you do that. Every time your mind your mind wanders, You you try to come back. You try to notice it and you try to come back and that can grow and develop. But what's much more powerful is understanding. Why do we come back? I mean, is it some kind of fetish, some kind of drill, some kind of militaristic drill to get a concentrated mind? Which sounds valuable, but kind of cold and sterile. Why is it suggested? And so, if there's wisdom even at this point, beginning to really see the consequences, the implications of the simple maneuver of turning in a different direction than we usually do. We have to do that intentionally. There's a lot of encouragement to do it. We're all helping each other. And what we have to see is that when we don't turn in that direction, that is when we run after the bone, but there really is quite a cost to the heart. The heart, as I'm using it here, um, includes the mind and is beyond the mind. It's one English translation of the Pali word citta. And citta is bigger than what we think of as mind. It's not just uh, the realm of psychology in the sense of thinking and memory, uh, imagination and so forth. It's actually quite vast. And as I think it was mentioned, the totally purified citta or the totally purified heart is nirvana. That's the, uh, the final fulfillment in this approach. And the practice has to do with caring for the heart, this citta, for each one of us. And we're not too good at it. We don't really know how to take care of ourselves. You know, people were always saying to each other, take care, take care. You know, don't we say that a lot? Take care of yourself. And in some ways, of course, we try to take care. But this is a much more subtle and refined view of what there is to care for and also what it is that's damaging. And again, as we start to see that some of the ways in which we live in the world, the ways in which our uh, heart unfolds, that they're not inevitable, that it's not fatalistic, that we have choices, that actually it's within our own means to liberate ourselves from many of these destructive tendencies. The the tendencies themselves, these kilesas, tendencies of greed or wanting, of hatred or aggression, aversion, or of unawareness, delusion, these tendencies come out of the heart come out of what we call our heart. But, so they can be cured right there. That is, they appear right smack there. They're covering the heart. But also the great joy and fulfillment that's possible in spiritual life comes out of that same heart. So the whole, at times, it seems like a battlefield. It's all inside our own heart. It's not out there. And from that point of view, the images that the ancients used of being a warrior is really quite accurate. It really does it justice. There is definitely, in a certain sense, a life and death struggle going on in each one of us as to whether we will be deformed and crippled by fear, by anxiety, etc., or whether we will flower as human beings. The spiritual life is all about flowering. And it's saying, certainly this path, but I, I really think probably all the paths, I can't say for sure. This path is suggesting that we have all we need. The potential is there. We each are a Buddha. The Buddha the Buddha, was like us. And all of the great arhants and bodhisattvas were like us. Selfish, angry people, deluded, doing all the things we do. And so... How to translate that, though, into not just a kind of global statement or a poetic statement, but something that's quite practical? Well, <clears throat> this bone that we keep running after, the kilesas, uh, is very powerful. I mean, the tendency to do it, it's like the dog. The, the dog is so exuberant. You know, it's so happy when it finally gets someone who's willing to throw a bone over and over. And you know sometimes how, how, much, how often they can do it. I mean, the thrower gets tired before the dog does. Oh, in my observation. And the power of the Kalesas is at least that strong. So the tendencies in the heart to be wanting from time to time, so often wanting this or that, feeling that we're wanting, We lack something. And so, because we feel we lack something, we need to go into operation to fill ourselves up with what's lacking. Happiness being defined as, in a sense, accumulation and getting as much as we can. The perspective of of the Dharma is very different, which is, how to not want so much? Why do we want so much? To start examining our wants and needs. And the focus is not so much on always getting our needs satisfied, is understanding why we're so needy in the first place. And, if you, certainly if you keep doing this practice, there's a radical re-evaluation where you begin to take notice of that which we don't really want. What is it that we don't want? I mean, aside from obviously very very negative things, we don't want what we already have. And in spiritual life, what we start to do is to, as you start to shine the light on yourself, you begin to see that we already have quite a bit. That there's a tremendous amount that we already have. I mean, starting from just the simple things that we're able to do, that we take for granted, of course. And some of the, the simplicity of the meditation practice rejuvenates that. For example, just to notice how to walk. In a way, it's kindergarten to come to a retreat like this. We're kind of consciousness kindergarten. We're beginning to learn how to walk, how to eat. How do we do anything? How does the mind work? How does it think and feel? How how do we breathe? Begin to to look at breathing in a very innocent way as if we've never known what it is, have never heard the term. And as you do that, of course, uh, there's certain very simple, fulfilling events take place inside of us. For example, in some of the interviews, people who are are suffering to some degree, are suffering because they're very ambitious, uh, have gotten the message of samadhi, there's no question about that, and are off and running. You know, to get whatever it is at the end of the ra- Samadhi rainbow, as you settle more into this as you begin to see that that is a kalesa, as that is just greed decked out as spiritual it puts on it's very skillful, it just dresses up as a yogi <laughs> and it's the same old thing just well if if it's Samadhi, then go get it for goodness sakes and little by little, perhaps we can come to see that just Fully experiencing one in-breath is great just to do that, just to, to be awake for one in-breath, possibly on a good sitting and out-breath as well. <laughs> These are all little building blocks. These are all moments of mindfulness, moments when we are in the present. And this is how we develop. It just we, It's one step at a time, one breath at a time. Similarly with the other kilesas, as we begin to see the mind, begin to see what is it that pulls us away from the breath, and begin to see that that which pulls us away is not really beneficial, but really see it. See, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because in my own experience, and I think it's not just my practice, I think it's lots of people have learned this, Uh, perhaps the greatest power is the power of understanding. And here I don't mean intellectual understanding, although that can can contribute as well. Is when you begin to understand that when you grasp on to something that's red hot, you will get burned. And then because of your own intelligence, you don't do that anymore. There's much more power. There's much more that can be counted on. It's not just a fad than simply listening to the teacher, being obedient to the teacher, or listening to what the Buddha said. I mean, do it. We have to start wherever we are. But more and more, wisdom is our our friend. More and more, if we can begin to see why practices like samadhi exist, and one of their values is to help extricate us from these commitments that seem to just happen without our being able to help ourselves. We just go off and running, just like the dog. More and more seeing that, with not only with greed, but of course the the remaining tuculases. Aversion or aggression and then unawareness. Now, this comes up in the practice here at IMS all the time. For example, how many of you, is there anyone here who has not heard the mind say to it, Oh, this is hard, and it's not much fun. Take a, br- take a break. Stop, get a cup of tea, go up to your room, a little hot chocolate, some animal crackers. <laughs> and then at 7 or eight, or 8 o'clock, Larry or someone else will read you a bedtime story <laughs> Call the Dharma Talk. And we listen. We say, yeah... I've been working so hard trying to follow the breath. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just do something that's good for me for a change. Yeah. Those are the Kalesas. They're not our friends. They're keeping us weak. They're keeping us chained to that same pattern that brought us here. Now, again, it's not to go to the other extreme and to have a kind of joyless, uh, grim austerity. It's not that at all. But what the Dharma is saying, the Dharma's voice, which we don't listen to as much. I'm not condemning anyone. We're all in this together and we're all working with this. What the Dharma's voice is persevere. As one of my teachers put it, um, he gave me a going away present calligraphy which said, among other things, but the ending of it was, only go straight next 10,000 years Try, 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 exclamation point. This is in broken Korean English. But you see what I mean? It's just So from the point of view of, of the Dharma, whether the practice is easy, or let's say whether a sitting is easy, or whether a sitting is hard, we still practice. Now we may not practice the same way. This is not rigidity that I'm talking about. Sometimes we are very discouraged, or let's say we've been sitting too much and the body aches beyond measure. And so we don't do that kind of a practice. Perhaps we do much more walking. So I'm talking about flexibility, but it's not literally that you have to keep sitting. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is the message of the Dharma is to strengthen that tendency to practice. The same teacher said, only keep the mind that decided to practice. Someone once asked him, this is San Sanim, some of you know him, Korean Zen master. They were concerned about all these, how difficult it was and how all the different trends in the mind, how the mind wanted to do so many different things which got in the way. And he said, only keep the mind that decided to practice. As you know, one of your minds decided to practice because it brought you here. Now, all those other minds have to suffer as a result. (laughs) One mind said, let's go up to IMS. Great, retreat, Buddhism, you know. Serenity, I hear all kinds of nice things. Buddhism is, I, I hear wonderful. Meditation, Vipassana. So that mind, it really had a lot of influence for the moment. It, you know, it send in the money, <laughs> licked the envelope and the stamp, got everything set up, packed. But then as soon as you get here, all those other minds, they came along for the trip, you know. <laughs> and they're right here, along with the mind that decided to practice. So this what the teaching is saying is. The mind that decided to practice, that's the mind that's your benefactor. The other minds, we know those minds. We've been doing it on and on and on. When are we, go, when are we going to stop? When are we going to say enough? You know, Now, each one of us has to feel that. Now, so one side of what helps the samadhi practice is the application of wisdom to that which we're taking ourselves out of, the field that we're taking ourselves out of, we realize, see, it's a kind of renunciation, temporary. Let's say during a sitting, every time when you uh, let go, in a sense, and turn to the breath, rather than than to all of these voices, these bones that want our attention, we're renouncing the world. It's not by putting on a loincloth or it's not giving up literally anything, the world is inside our heart. It's all concerned with gain and loss and and fame and infamy and profit and loss and being blamed and being congratulated and those things just keep cycling over and over and over again. It's inside of us. And all the concerns about how we're doing. Well, that's what's coming out. That's the world. Now, Vipassana meditation is an attempt to bring the mind to such a level of intensity that it's free of the world. It's free of being controlled by the world. Please understand this. It doesn't mean that you, especially. I'm really worried now. The couples who I made the suggestion <laughs> about. I am not saying you have to get a divorce, split up. It has, in order to be spiritual, not at all. What we're talking about are enslavement. We're talking about mechanical. Uh, forms of behavior where we have no control where we just do things helplessly and if it were working out in a very good way great then there would be no need for us to be here but we can see that that doesn't work and so the int- level of intensity bringing the mind to that level of intensity so that we can be free of the control of the world means that the mind becomes more stable than all of the different voices all those other Not the the mind that decided to practice, but all those other minds that won't go near practice. They know what practice means. It means curtains for them. (laughs) You think greed doesn't understand what's going on here? Or hatred? You know, now we'll do a metta meditation. What? (laughs) You think hatred likes to hear you learning metta? That's gonna put hatred out of business. Unemployment, all of that. So, that that struggle is what's going on. Now, the renunciation comes in because in a moment, if in just one moment, you, we're able to let go of some preoccupation of the mind. And especially more and more as we understand that what we're letting go of is no great loss. But you have to see it. Each one of us has to see that. It becomes a lot easier to become calm when we understand what it is that we're giving up. I repeat, if it was so wonderful, I don't think any of us would be here. This would be uh, Cinema 1, 2, 3, and 4. It would not be a Buddhist meditation center. But we're here. Okay, so on the one hand is seeing the futility of some of these repetitive loops that go on over and over and over and over again. Not necessarily in the sitting that we're doing, not while we're doing samadhi practice, but all over the place, during the day, seeing how, because the dog runs after the bone, not just when we're on the cushion. It runs after the bone all day long. You know, it's a very energetic dog. It runs after it even in this hall. You know, just, you're all starting to sit, and everyone's eyes are closed, and someone comes in five or ten minutes late. And then these little eyes start peeking to see who's late. <laughs> now, you could say, well, how do you know? That means I'm peeking too. <coughs> Which is true, but that's, my, <laughs> but that's my job. It is, honestly. But look at it that way. It's sort of mechanically. You're sitting, getting all set, the highest intentions. And all of a sudden you hear squeak, 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 squeak. And then, gotta turn up and see who it is. It'll kill you if you don't see who it is, right? Let it go. Let the squeak, squeak. It's a person. Just some another yogi with a blanket wrapped around, you know. Give it up. Okay, so one side that strengthens the samadhi practice is actually the workings of wisdom at whatever level of skill we have. Just beginning to see what these pulls amount to. What they actually produce for us. Actually, not the promises they make. Not, not the how it's gift wrapped and all of that. You know, those of you who've gone to universities, I don't know if you know this, I spent a lot of time in universities once. Have you ever read those brochures? You know how with the couples walking across campus and everyone looks so intelligent and smiling. Is there one university that is at all like any of those brochures? And yet, and everything, all kinds of things, promises coming, these products wrapped up and you know proclaiming how wonderful it is, you know, beautifully. Now it's becoming art, you know, just all these commercial products. It's the same with the Calaisis. They're not stupid. You know, so they, they come and they give us what we think we want. And we have to begin to see through some of that. Now, the other side has to do with being like the tiger, developing tiger mind. Uh, what re- we'll get into, I don't, we definitely don't have time tonight, but, uh, When the dog starts investigating the bone, that's what I've been hinting at. We'll go into Vipassana in one or two evenings from now, when the practice starts more and more bringing that in in a more full way. When the dog starts investigating just what is the nature of this bone that I've been running after all the time. uh, That's the beginnings of wisdom. And at a certain point, the dog may not want to run after the bone. I don't know how the master is going to take to that. But at any rate, that's the wisdom part. But we're still with samadhi tonight. And I just want to leave you with a, a few, I don't know what to call them, ideas or something about the issue. That is, on the one hand, is more and more seeing the limitations of the bone. So we're less likely to be pulled away from the breath. On the other hand, is to see the beauty of staying with the breath. In this case, there are many things that can be used to develop samadhi. We're using the breath, so I'm speaking that way. More and more, beginning to learn about the ways of the breath, about the ways of staying with one object, the fidelity to the breath, coming to it and seeing what comes out of that. Now, a few practical points. First of all, we're now looking at it from the point of view of the breath, not from the point of view of the bone. See if you can begin to notice whether your mind is more likely to run after the bone during an in-breath or an out-breath. Very often you'll see that it's not just random. For some people, we seem to lose it right at the out-breath. We're a little more vulnerable there and the mind just scampers right after whatever it is. More likely to happen during an out-breath, the end of an out-breath. And for other people, it's during an in-breath. Now, if, if you begin to see that, And as the mind gets quieter, it will be able to make more precise observations like this. Maybe the first night or the first few days, it would be hard to see that. But now, little by little, we will be settling down, a little bit at a time, and you may be able to see things like this. When you see it, then it's the beginnings of evening the practice out. For example, if you notice that on the out-breath, there's more of a likelihood of leaving the breath and getting caught up in something, then just a little bit of extra attention on the out-breath. Not too much, not to add any strain, but just a little bit. And that will start to happen less and less. And so we correct it. Okay, Now, if you remember, what was being suggested is that the samadhi practice, we're exchanging, we're trading in all of these many possibilities that the mind throws up, that the heart throws up let's say most of them kilesas, not necessarily everything. And we're being asked in this practice to let that go and to just take one preoccupation, the breath, which at first, of course, is not a preoccupation. In fact, we're not interested in it very much. So how can we help that along? One side of it is, in a sense, discrediting the tremendous uh, wonderful hopes that we have for these bones. Now, the other side of it is beginning to see the possibilities of a calm and concentrated mind, of what can come out of selecting the breath, and instead of running here, there, and everywhere, time and time again, sometimes even though we don't want to, we gracefully, as best as we can, we come back to the breathing. Okay, now. Some of what does that, of course, the most important thing that starts to turn it around is that each one of us begins to see in our own practice the beauty and the value of remembering to breathe consciously. It's self convincing. I mean, you just, uh, as the mind and more and more, there's a, a, a pattern that happens, and it, no one's exempt from it. Everyone who's here will taste it eventually if you do the practice. It really isn't mysterious, it's lawful. As our ability to pay attention to the breath improves, that means as there are fewer gaps. And again, don't lust after that, it's just take it one breath at a time. And just be grateful. If you're just It's training in humility. That there was one mindful in-breath. That's, that's good, it's not a waste of time. You finally knew. oh, I just breathed in, I just breathed out. We're not going wrong. That's good. Okay. As that starts to develop, you begin to notice that along with the continuity of the awareness comes more stillness in the mind. And with the stillness comes more happiness, a certain kind of inner joy that has nothing to do with how the world is treating us, which in itself is quite profound when we learn that there are ways of being happy that are not dependent on the world, we're beginning to develop something that's very, very helpful in terms of practice. We become less desperate because there's a source of happiness inside each one of us that's waiting to be tapped. There's no energy crisis here, none at all. It's infinite. And as we begin to taste even a little bit of that, we start to understand that this simple operation of letting go of these many tantalizing notions that the mind throws up, and time and time again turning to the simple in-breath and the simple out-breath, even though that operation is a very simple one, it has profound consequences. And so, of course, then what comes out of that is zeal and interest, what the ancients called chanda, I mean a real interest in practicing and as we become more interested we become happier and want to practice more and at a certain point the kilesas become less interesting to us. A lot of the things that the world throws up and I'm not saying leave the world, what I'm talking about is attachment to many things in the world that don't seem to be so wonderful for us. The balance starts to shift and we begin more and more to turn towards the Dharma. And we do it out of understanding. See, not because some teacher said you should do it, or the Buddha said, or whoever. We do it because it's intelligent, because it's wise. We start our uh, our values start to change, the way our priorities begin to change, and we and we try more and more to keep the mind that decided to practice.